Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I want to welcome you to episode 22 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. In this podcast, we're going to look at a presentation I recently delivered at the 18th Annual NPA Conference that was held in 2011 at the University of Maryland. We're going to cover a lot of topics in this episode, so it's going to be one of our longer ones. But at the end, we hope to show and introduce a new model called Modern Classical Mechanics that will be over 100 times more accurate than, special, than the special relativity equations. We also will show and explain some of the terms that may have been confusing from a relativistic perspective, like the twin paradox, time dilation, and length contraction, and explain what they are, why they're required by relativity, and why they're not required by modern classical mechanics. The first thing we need to do is understand the function and role of models and theories in science. And I, I extend that to say science and engineering. And the real purpose are either to explain things or to predict things. Now, models and theories don't have to be perfect. The key thing is that they are good enough to be useful. And this is a key distinction that I think is very, very important, and I think it is one that most scientists and engineers recognize, which is that you can operate with a model or a theory that's not 100% accurate and doesn't explain everything, but it's good enough for our work. Now, this creates a, an opportunity for new models to be introduced. When new models are introduced, there is a couple of different schools of thought as to how paradigm shifts occur. One, which was advocated by Max Planck, is that the old guard has to die or move on. The second, advocated by Thomas Kuhns, is that people will believe logical, rational arguments. And as you'll see shortly, both of these, while partially true, are not enough. In fact, when we look at the old guard, what happens is we have examples of this occurring all of the time, where existing professors or recognized experts may retire or simply stop teaching. And what we found through our experience is that there's always students or new graduates or other followers who are expert in that particular subject matter who are willing to step in and be guardians of the prevailing model. So just because an existing guardian moves on, that alone is not going to be enough. How about when we look at logical arguments? Well, last year I presented a logical argument that I called the failure of Einstein's spherical wave proof. And in this proof, we show that Einstein says you start with a spherical wave, you go through some mathematics to conclude that you have a spherical wave. And if you've done this step, this proof correctly, this is what establishes relativity theory. And what we found is that by looking at the equations alone and, and not recognizing all of the requirements that are required to be a sphere or a spherical wave, you could reach a false positive conclusion. The correction, as we talked about in the last episode, is to simply perform an additional check to see if the radius is the same for all of our points. And if that's the case, then we know we have a valid sphere or circle. And if that fails, then we know we didn't. When we look at Einstein's derivation and we put some real numbers in there, uh, we find that by just checking against the equations, which is what Einstein did in his proof, he was able to conclude in a false positive manner that he had a sphere. 
And in fact, this has been the prevailing interpretation for the past century. What we found is just the addition of that check, do all the points have the same radius, we find that a sphere was not formed and the proof actually failed. And you'll see this in the table on the far right, where we have at least three different radius values shown there, which means we don't have a sphere. So when we consider Einstein's proof, we find that the proof actually failed. So this is a logical argument where it failed. However, over the past year, I've received three types of, of arguments uh, against this um, proof or this analysis. One claims that Einstein never says you're going to end with a spherical wave, or they say that he never begins with one. So they basically ignore aspects of Einstein's proof. The second says, well, it's true if you consider it from a relativistic perspective. And again, the counter, the, the point there is they're applying relativity before you've established relativity. The third and most important one was when people say, well, he talked about a sphere in this paper, but he really should be talking about a hypercone since that's the shape he talks about in his future works. And that is a valid argument that we need to talk about because as an author, I know that your ideas that you may write one year may change and morph as time progresses. So as we look at the hypercone, we have to begin with a quiz. And when we look at this, the quiz reads, you're moving at 10 miles per hour, have been traveling for some number of hours, let's say two. Which of the following is used to measure the product of your velocity multiplied by the amount of time you've been traveling? And your choices are a ruler, a clock, a scale, and a bucket. Most people will answer this a ruler because velocity multiplied by time is always a distance. Now in a moment, some people will want to change their answer to a clock. So in order to understand why that might be the case, we have to look at the power of beliefs. And in this case, we're going to look at an illustration of Einstein's hypercone. And in this case, the only thing I want to point out is the vertical axis, which is labeled L. That's the one axis we want to understand. Now, first, in order to understand this, we need to first anchor ourselves in something that we know is true. Distance equals velocity times time. Now we look at Einstein's work. And when we read his book, we find that he treats L in his hypercone derivation as a time variable. And we know that from the statements that he makes where he refers to it as time, or he characterizes it with clocks or, 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 or with beats. So these are all things that Einstein says as he's describing L. Now, the way he creates L is with a simple brushstroke that is really intended as a substitution for convenience. He really doesn't want CT floating around in his derivation. So he says, I'm just going to replace that with L and continues with his work. The problem is with that simple brushstroke, he did not realize that L is not just a replacement, it is actually a distance. So in his derivation where he starts talking about time, he should be talking about length. And as a result, the analysis and the theoretical underpinnings about time are not completely accurate. Now, I've been able to show this, and it's a real simple derivation to show, or a real simple proof to show that L is actually a distance. Now, some folks, some people, will continue to believe that L represents time, even in the face of this evidence. So how do changes happen? Well, changes happen when I think two things occur. One is you have a new model 
that's more intuitive and produces better math results. Now, it doesn't need to do both of those, but ideally, for a paradigm shift to be successful, it should do both of those. Second, the new model is supported by a group of experts in that new model and who are expert in the old model. If they're not expert in the old and the new, it's real hard to convince people to move to the new model or the new paradigm. So our goal today is to introduce the, mod the modern classical mechanics model, explain why it produces better experimental results, explain why it's easier and more intuitive to understand, and help use it to help us explain things about relativity theory that the experts in relativity today themselves would have difficulty answering. So now I'd like to introduce you to the basics of modern classical mechanics. And our goal today is to introduce you to a model that should be more intuitive, uh, provide equations that yield better mathematical results, and provides a mechanism for explaining things about other models like relativity that those other models would have difficulty explaining. Ideas like what is time dilation, length contraction, and the twin paradox, and why does relativity absolutely require them is something we can now answer. And at the same time, we'll be able to answer why, why a model like modern classical mechanics doesn't require it. Now, before I move on, I just want to say one thing about modern classical mechanics. And in, pre, in prior episodes and podcasts, you may have heard me talk about the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. So just think of modern classical mechanics as version two of that earlier model. The main idea behind classical mechanics is to make it intuitive. We're going to build on things that you're probably already familiar with. And the main concept is one of a system. Now, there are a couple of rules that we have in modern classical mechanics. One is a system is one, two, or three dimensions. So far, we haven't found a need for more. Systems can be placed entirely on or in other systems. Systems move with respect to others on to uh, respect to the system on or in which they were placed and depending on how do you how you view the system you can think of it in in terms of being a particle or a wave but the key concept is one of a system and as we already mentioned a system can be one dimensional which is a line two dimensional which is a plane or three dimensional which is a space so let's stay with the two dimensional system for a moment and just plot our first system since it's our first system, there isn't another system in existence yet. We call this our outer coordinate system. Now, our second rule said, um, or, or one of our rules said that uh, systems can only move with respect to other systems. So since there's not another system, this is somewhat rather uninteresting. So in order to make things more interesting, we have to plot a second system. This one we will call an inner coordinate system. And this, of course, is interesting because it can move. And it can move in one of a number of different ways. One way we can say is that it slides. You can slide it left, right, up, down. All of these slide type motions we call translation. We can also stretch it in much the same way you would stretch a rubber band or a slinky. We call this scaling. Third, you can turn it and point it in all sorts of different directions. We call this rotation. And fourth, you can flip it almost the same way that, you, that an image is flipped when looking in a mirror, and we call this reflection. Now, all four of these types of transformations are basic geometric transformations that are well understood and well explained both 
theoretically, conceptually, and mathematically in many textbooks, so we're not going to go into the math here. However, we can say that in mathematics, you can find the topic discussed in geometric transformations, and in computer science, you'll find it often discussed in textbooks or in, in courses on computer graphics. Now, by itself, this isn't enough to explain all the observations that we see in many of the experiments that have been performed in areas like special relativity. So for that, we actually have to add a third system. So this black box we will add, and this is going to be our third system. In order to avoid name confusion, we're going to call this moving phenomena. So when we add this moving phenomena to the outer system, we have two inner systems, or excuse me, an inner system, a moving phenomena, and both of those are plotted on the outer system. This is an incomplete system relationship. Then if we were to plot that moving phenomena on the inner system, which itself is plotted on the outer system, this nested relationship is a complete system relationship. Both of these are important because they help us distinguish how that moving phenomena is going to behave when the inner system is moving. So as you can see, we will have two sets of equations, one that explains what's occurring with the inner system and one that explains what's going on with the moving phenomena. And that's a very important distinction between this model and relativity theory. So here we see both systems. Now what's interesting is when we put everything in motion. So what we will do with the inner system is we will just put it into translation motion. We will just slide it across the outer system. And while that's occurring, we will ask the moving phenomena to just oscillate between points P and Q. So you can see in one case, it's going to oscillate with respect to points P and Q with respect to the inner system. So its motion is governed by the inner system. That's a complete system relationship. And as the moving phenomena is oscillating between points in Q, P and Q, but it's moving with respect to the outer system, that's an incomplete system relationship. And we'll show some illustrations of this next. First, let's view that moving phenomena and show its behavior if it's a particle. On the left-hand side, we have a complete system relationship, and it behaves just from the perspective of the moving phenomena. There's no difference when the inner system is moving or when it's stationary. So there is an equation that tells us what's occurred to the inner system, but from a moving phenomena perspective, it's oscillating behavior. It has not changed. When we look at the incomplete system relationship on the right-hand side, we, we can see that because we're asking the moving phenomena to oscillate between the front and back of the inner system, but its motion is governed by the outer system, we get this long line, short line oscillation behavior. So that's something that's really important for us to recognize. Now, another thing that's a very important point is that when we talk about particles and we look at long lines and short lines and, and figure out how they behave, the main thing that we're looking at is their additive behavior. So the main operation here is addition. And when we look at waves, they behave slightly differently because we look at wavelength as opposed to length. And 
I'm illustrating a wave just as one wave as a circle. So if we look beginning with an incomplete system relationship, a circle may, may start at one point. Imagine yourself as being in a rowboat with a friend and, and the boat is moving down the stream and you splash your hand in the water. Well, the boat's going in a certain direction. Eventually the wave will hit your friend. When your friend, when the wave hits your friend, you splash your hand, uh, hit his hand, and then the wave propagates back towards you. But since the boat is now moving towards the wave, it actually reaches you quicker than uh, when you were stationary or than the amount of time it took to, for your wave to reach your friend. And again, we create this long line, short line relationship. Now, just graphically, if we're looking at a long line, short line, we might not notice something. But because this is wavelength, we talk about wavelength in completely different terms than length. And when we do this, we look at concepts like the superposition of waves principles. We can also look at it from a frequency perspective. And what this means is that mathematically, when we look at things, we look at it using averages, not addition. Now, when we look at a complete system relationship, you can see that there's no difference uh, as, as the case when the, when the boat in this case was stationary. So it's very, very similar to what we saw with the particle uh, mathematically. Now, there is an error on this drawing because the wave technically would not propagate outside of the inner system. Uh, the lines that uh, you see drawn in the outer system really don't exist. So the drawing should look like this, although if I presented this picture first, it would be hard to understand what was going on. So there are a couple of examples which you can read on this particular slide. I won't go on this in detail. Uh, today I used a boat example, and so if you think of a boat that has water on the outside or water on the inside, that will help you understand how waves are behaving in modern classical mechanics. And if you are using the bus example, which I've given many, many times before, that gives you an understanding of how particles would behave, where particles would be described with length and waves will be described using wavelength. So with that context set, what we want to do now is explain, well, that's great, Steve. We're glad you introduced us to modern classical mechanics, but relativity is a pretty good thing. And so what we need to do now is explain why relativity is, in fact, a pretty good thing and why modern classical mechanics actually yields better results. And we began by looking at the classical Michelson-Morley experiment. They took two equations and combined them using addition and came up with their expected result equation, performed their experiment, collected a lot of data. They expected to find 30 kilometers per second found about 5 to 8 kilometers per second, which is an error of about 22 to 25 kilometers per second. In other words, it wasn't anywhere near their expected result. They looked at their data, they looked at their algorithm, they could not find anything wrong with their data or their experiment or, or their expected result equation. So they concluded that the Earth was not moving at 30 kilometers per second but only five to eight at the most. This was puzzling because everyone expected it to be either zero or 30 or some other number than five to eight, which was a complete surprise. Lorenz wanted to explain this result. And in fact, he did in the early 1900s, he wrote a paper explaining 
uh, introducing what are now the classic Einstein-Lorenz equations, and his goal was to explain the 5 to 8 kilometers per second. Einstein took Lorenz's equations and modified it with a theory. And around the equations, he said, well, the answer really isn't 30. 5 to 8 really doesn't make sense. So the answer really is 0. And what you're seeing is experimental error. Now, this is good. And a lot of people accept this because experimental error of 5 to 8 kilometers per second is so far the best that we've been able to do. And we look at other experiments like the Ives Stillwell atomic clock experiment, which is from an entirely different class. And in that particular case, we have an error of 0.02 hertz, which is really tiny. In fact, so tiny that some people believe that the Einstein-Lorenz equations are the only equations that will predict that experiment. But there are a couple of problems. One, when we look at the original Michelson and Morley data and we plot experimental error using standard deviations and statistics, we find that we are able to put a confidence interval around the experiment itself. And we can say we are 99.9% .9 sure that the Earth's velocity as detected by Michelson Morley is between 6 and 10 kilometers per second. Zero falls outside of that range. So when we hear zero is the result of Michelson-Morley, people are simply ignoring the data and they're ignoring the statistics that we would use to show what actually occurred in the experiment. So now when we look at modern classical mechanics and we add that to the mix, remember the key distinction here is that modern classical mechanics interprets and performs mathematics based on wavelength, not length, which means we're taking averages of the equations, not adding them. And there are a couple of other adjustments we've made to Michelson-Morley, for example, um, to, to adjust for what they're observing in terms of their fringes. With those corrections, we found that they are at, that they actually detected 30 kilometers per second. They got their actual result. Their experiment was actually a success. And we'll show that in just a second. So we can see, see here that they got 32 kilometers per second. Miller, another scientist in 1933, set out to perform a, a repeat ex experiment, and he found that he detected actually 30 kilometers per second. So when you use the original al algorithm, you don't get any experimental convergence at all. When you use the revised algorithm, both sets both experimenters came up with essentially the same answer. So that gives us some amount of validity that we're on the right track. Now what gives us more validity is when we start to look at the Ives Stillwell cl atomic clock experiment. And here again, as I mentioned earlier, the Einstein-Lorenz equations give us really good results. However, the revised wavelength-based equations produce essentially zero error for the, for the level of, of accuracy to the experiment. So but because we have 0.0002 here, I'm just going to say that that is 100 times more accurate than what Einstein's, the Einstein-Lorenz equations pr uh, produce. 
The last thing we want to do is talk about modern classical mechanics and relate it to other theories like relativity theory. And specifically, we want to talk about why relativity theory requires things like length contraction, time dilation, and the twin paradox, and why modern classical mechanics doesn't. And part of the reason, as you'll see, is because modern classical mechanics is a, a three-component system. We have an outer system, an inner system, and moving phenomena, which means we have equations for the inner system and the moving phenomena. And relativity theory is only a two-component system where they have a reference frame and a moving frame. The other distinction is that relativity theory only talks in terms of length. In our model, modern classical mechanics, we're able to talk in terms of length and in terms of wavelength. So let's begin by looking at what has occurred in, in science and in physics for many, many years. And we're going to look at two equations. The one on the left is the equation that relates velocity, frequency, and wavelength. The one on the right is one that relates distance and velocity and time. Now what we're going to show is that these two equations, which are really two different things, are mistreated as being one and the same. So the first thing that occurs is we substitute velocity with some specific types. In this case, we're going to put in meters per second. Then we're going to substitute wavelength in with its type. Now in textbooks, you'll see it written via words as wavelength is length per cycle, which is absolutely correct. However, when it's tr translated into mathematics, it's written as meters, not meters per cycle. Well, if we have velocity as meters per cycle, and we have wavelength as meters, then when we replace for frequency, we have to show that as inverse seconds. And in fact, many books, when they talk about the frequency domain, define frequency mathematically as seconds raised to the negative one, or inverse seconds. All we have to do is simply rewrite that, move seconds to the other side of the equation, and we get meters equals meters per second times seconds, which is distance equals velocity times time. So this is important because what it does is it shows us that many, many times we may start with wavelength-based equations and we treat everything from a length-time perspective. Now, the modern classical mechanics makes a distinction. So again, we're going to start with the two equations. The first one that relates velocity, frequency, and wavelength on the left, and distance, velocity, and time on the right. We perform the first substitution. That's the same as in the length model, where we say velocity is, in this case, going to be meters per second. But we recognize that wavelength is meters per cycle. It's some length per cycle. So we keep the per cycle term. We do not drop that term, which means when we look at our substitution for frequency, we're able to call it cycles per second, which is in fact what it was called before we adopted the nomenclature Hertz in honor of the man Hertz. So if we, if we recognize that the wavelength equation is meters per second or some amount of, of length over some amount of time, equals cycles per second times meters per cycle, or some amount of distance over, over cycles. We keep all of that in the wavelength domain. It's not going to be mistreated as distance equals velocity times time. They're treated as two different things 
in modern classical mechanics. Now, this is important because now what we want to do is show, well, if we had some experiments, how would we explain these experiments in a length-based model versus a wavelength-based model? And here are two experimental observations. So we're going to start with the triangle. And you can see if we're explaining that triangle observation, so we observe something that's changed, in a length-based model, we have to explain it as a change in meters. Einstein does this with a term he calls length contraction. But if you follow that down to a wavelength-based interpretation and model, it's just a change in wavelength. It's a Doppler shift effect. Now if we look at the circle, Again, looking at a length-based model, we're looking at a change in time. Einstein explains this using a concept he calls time dilation. But again, if you look at this from a wavelength-based perspective, it's just a change in frequency. Once again, it's another variation of a Doppler shift. So we're able to explain the same experimental observations and behaviors using Doppler shifts because they're wavelength-based observations. But if you try and explain a wavelength-based observation using length-based terminology and equations, you will have artifacts like time dilation or length contraction or something that has to explain your change in length and your change in time. So many of you have seen this slide before. Again, going back to our long line and our short line. And the long line you can just think of as the long um, wavelength that occurs with the Doppler shift as frequency elongates, and the shorter one is as frequency uh, increases. If we want to find the average of these two lines, or these two equations, the first, there's two ways we could do it. The first is we could just add the two and divide, divide them in half. That's one way of doing it. In fact, that's the easy way. But there are two other non-obvious ways to come up with the exact same answer. And what we do to use those two non-obvious ways, the first thing we do is we say, well, the long line and the short line do have the same length up to a certain point. And that's represented on the screen as blue. So the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna subtract the long line from the short line, or the short line from the long line and come up with the remainder. That's in green. Now, if we have the remainder and we already know that the, the blue parts are even, then we just need to divide the remainder in two and properly distribute them. So here we've divided the remainder in two and we're gonna distribute half of that remainder to the short line. Now that we've distributed half the remainder to the short line, we now have two lines that are the same length or we found the average. Now, what was that part that we moved? Remember, we took half of the remainder and half of the remainder is vx prime over the speed, over c squared minus v squared. And you'll see the three ways that we've just summarized. So first is you can take that half and you can subtract it from the long line. You can add it to the short line, or you can use the obvious method, which is to add both of them and divide by two. And we'll come back to this last equation in just a moment. But I do want us to remember this vx prime uh, c squared minus v squared. Now, in Einstein's original German version, he uses capital V instead of C, but it's the same thing as we've just shown. So what we've just done is we've just given meaning to this part of Einstein's derivation. This is important because it positions us to explain something that the relativistic interpretation can't explain. The best that they can do is to say this is the adjustment 
to time. Well, I could say t minus 5, t minus 10, t minus q. All of those are adjustments to time. It doesn't give a whole lot of meaning. But what we've been able to do is say, actually, what we're doing is we're, we're subtracting one half of the remainder from the long length, and that's going to give us the average. So we're able to be a lot more specific. And in fact, when we look at each of Einstein's equations, what we found he's done is he's actually just found the average Doppler shift in each of the different directions. That's all he's done. That's all these equations explain. So it gives us a very good specific meaning if we look at it from a wavelength perspective. Alternatively, relativistically, you can look at it from a length perspective, in which case these are not Doppler shifts. They are X, Y, and Z coordinates. Okay. Remember, you will have different ramifications and interpretations if you interpret a wavelength-based experiment using length equations and interpretations. Modern classical mechanics, in this case, is looking at applying a wavelength-based interpretation against wavelength-based experiments. So this brings us to our twin paradox. And the twin paradox can actually be understood pretty, pretty simply using a, the concept of sound. And that's also another thing I should mention about modern classical mechanics is that it applies even, uh, evenly to sound or water or light. Um, the, the only thing that changes is uh, what, what we've shown here is C, which right now is the speed of light, but you replace that with the speed of a water wave or a speed of a sound wave or something like that to make the math work. So let's use sound. We're going to have a person at a train station, another person on the train, and they have a frequency counter and a horn, and they're going to synchronize their clots by blowing the horn. And as the frequency counter clicks every thousand clicks, they're going to say, okay, that's a second. The train is stationary. The, the station, of course, isn't moving. So as they blow, both blow their horns and they're listening to each other's horns, their frequency counters are both clicking at the same rate. So, so they feel that they are synchronized. So now we put the train in motion and we move it away from the station. The train, the, the person on the station blows his horn. The person on the train hears that horn, but he hears a Doppler shift effect going on because he's in motion. So the frequency is lower than the person at the train station is hearing. So the person at the train station's counter is still clicking at the same rate. The person on the train, however, because he's hearing a lower frequency, his frequency counter is actually running slower. In other words, time is running slower for the person on the train. But wait a second, the person on the train has a horn too, and he's blowing that horn, and his frequency counter is going at a certain rate, so he's happy about that, and the person in the station is hearing that other horn, and he's, which is undergoing a similar Doppler shift, and he's receiving it at a slower rate. So from his perspective, his clock is running slower. So who's running slower, the person on the train or the person in the station? If you're trying to explain this using length and you're using this purely from a time perspective, then you'd say this is a twin paradox because time is what's occurring here. But once we understand that what's really going on is we have a Doppler shift going on because of a result of motion and Doppler shifts are going on because what's really happening is, is a wavelength based um, event, then we really recognize that time really hasn't changed. Our measuring system has become distorted because of a result of motion. So, so far, we haven't been able to find a length-based model that seems to unify what we're seeing with basic mo movements, uh, electromagnetic force, 
gravity uh, double slit type experiments, which are typically ca categorized as quantum mechanics, time, we haven't found a unifying length-based theory. Although we've tried many, um, things like string theory, for example, come to mind. However, when we look at a model that recognizes the role of length and wavelength, we're now able to create a model that may be much more comprehensive in the types of things that it's able to explain or predict. So that's one of the, um, I, I think, promises of modern classical mechanics, and it's one of the things I'm looking forward to exploring over the, the uh, upcoming months and years. So just to summarize and establishing the, the expertise, modern classical mechanics is a three-component system. We have an outer system, an inner system, and a moving phenomena, which means mathematically we explain the movement of the inner system and the moving phenomena. Relativity is a two-component system. They only have a reference system and moving phenomena, and as a result, they explain things from a weight, from a length-based perspective, or they wouldn't be able to serve as a replacement for Newtonian mechanics. For us, because we have three, we can we keep Newtonian mechanics intact from an inner system perspective, and from a moving phenomena perspective, we're able to explain the behavior of, of particles, which are length-based, and waves, which are wavelength-based. Number two, we were able to explain why theories like relativity theory require length contraction, time dilation, and the twin paradox. And that's because they're using a length-based model to explain wavelength-based interpretations. We don't have an issue there because we are using wavelength interpretations when looking at wavelength experiments, and we're using length interpretations when looking at length experiments. As a result, we're able to produce predictions and results that are a hundred times more accurate in the case of I. Stillwell and a lot more accurate in the case of Michelson-Morley than a similar interpretation using the Einstein-Lorenz equations. And as we've summed up here, we're able to recognize that some of the key shapes that are required for relativity, like a hypercone and a sphere, really aren't formed. And although we didn't talk about this today, it really helps us explain things down the road and gets rid of other concepts that are required by special relativity, such as space-time curvature. So as we wrap up, there are a few things I want you to remember as, as you look at modern classical mechanics, and that is it distinguishes between length and wavelength. As a result of that simple change, we're able to introduce a model that makes sense. In other words, it behaves the way you think it should behave. Two, it produces more accurate results, and we were able to show that with two classes of experiments, the Michelson-Morley interferometer type of experiment and the I. Stillwell atomic clock style of experiment. And we're able to explain things about other models, like relativity, that they themselves can't explain. So I want to thank you for watching episode 23 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. You can find more information at RelativityChallenge.com. I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, be well.